0: everybody, to another episode of From Paper to People, the family cookbook. And this week, first time ever, I have an on-the-ground food correspondent from Wisconsin. That's right, a food correspondent. His name is Rick Leonard. He's a regular listener. He has a wonderful blog called An American Genealogy, and I really want you to check it out. He's also on Twitter. And eventually, we're going to talk about his blog because he's doing some amazing things there. In the meantime, though, he's got a recipe that you need to hear about because I need to hear about it too. We all need to hear about it. So, everybody, say hello to Rick. Hey, Rick.
1: Hello. Hi, everybody.
0: So, what do you have for us today? This is history.
1: Sure. Well, I'm, I'm going to set it up a little bit. Um, uh, it's a simple casserole, but it was, an, and it really goes back to the Johnny Mazzetti episode and sort of the importance in your family and tracing family. Uh, We call it Emily's casserole, and um, Emily is interesting because she's an integral part of our family, but wasn't technically part of our family. My uh, great grandparents uh, lived in Anigo, Wisconsin, around the turn of the century. My great grandfather E. A. Morris was a congressman, uh, three-term congressman from that area, and um, was also a property owner, a logger, was involved in the community, and during his travels at some point, and it, it's a bit of a family lore at this, at this time, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, Emily's not with us anymore to ask, but um, EA explained to Emily's father that the environment she was living in was not acceptable, and that it was time for her to come with him. And they effectively adopted her probably around 10 to 11 years old and uh, and lived with them and had an interesting relationship. She is about the same age as my grandmother and just a few years apart. And so they really were like sisters. But Emily was also an employee and was uh, a housekeeper and a nanny to some degree, uh, helped in the kitchen, things like that. And so there was a really interesting relationship um you know at at that time and I've always been fascinated by it but as my grandmother uh the only child started having children Emily really became their nanny and they had uh she had five boys five impossible to manage boys the the Leonard boys are legendary in Antigo and and, um and we could do a whole nother episode on that but um they you know were quite a handful and my grandmother was not domestic living was not her priority. Um, she was college educated. She ran in some pretty good circles. Uh, they were a family of means. And so really, you know, as I talked to the family, Emily was the one that cooked. And so really, you know, I, I can think of two things that my grandmother cooked. Um, and, uh, it, and it was, you know, not really a recipe or sort of a passed out family tradition, but, um, you know, I grew up eating Emily's casserole. I didn't know much about it. I knew Emily I mean she was alive and and you know, she's one of my favorite people. but it turns out that Emily was also really all of these five brothers, my uncle's, my father, their favorite person too. We have two Emily's um, children from those uh, those boys, and uh, she's really a part of the fabric and the lore and you know i I realized later, especially after listening to the episode that you know. Emily's casserole tells a story. It is something that my father loved and was a comfort food for him. And as he got married and and you know started building a family with myself and my brother, you know, my mom knew Emily well and knew this was something dad loved, and she brought it forward, and it became a part of our childhood. And definitely a comfort food. Uh, there'd be times when I lived far away from home that when I came home, mom would say, well, what do you want? It'd be like, well, chili, local pizzeria and Emily's casserole. And it's one of those things that it is not the most adventurous recipe in the world. It is not, uh, I don't think we're going to tell a genealogical story with it per se, but it is definitely Emily coming forward to my children who now eat, you know, a very similar version of it. But,
0: but yeah, is- so- th- there is an American story here, though, and I think that it's an important one to point up. This is also a story of privilege, of, of economic privilege, and of sort of American and white privilege, because this young woman, she was a child, was she a child of immigrants? Am I understanding yeah, this correctly? Yeah,
1: that's right. She's, uh, um, her parents uh, uh, emigrated from Germany. Okay. Uh, and we believe that um, she was born soon after. Um, I will tell you, I have worked the tree and
0: I was going to ask, <laughs> I, can, I get to
1: 1910 and I've got nothing else, but in all likelihood, and again, you know how the family stories can be apocryphal, but I, I think it's less that EA was a landlord, which is kind of the way it's told. And I'm willing to bet it's more that Paul Ott, Emily's father was uh, involved in logging and okay. EA uh, and his brother-in-laws were the largest landowners in northern Wisconsin for a time, a huge logging operation. And so, yeah, they're definitely immigrants, large family, and apparently, you know, some some abject circumstances. But there's definitely, you're right about that.
0: So one of the things that I think is important to note here is that privilege is about, <laughs> how do I say this? It's about finance and it's about being established in the community and that no matter what when we look at our ancestors there's always a mix of good and bad or of good intentions but not necessarily the best execution so you can't find fault for them wanting to help her out because that's a good thing and you can understand that they just were doing the best that they could even though it may not be what we would choose to do today by putting her in essentially a lifelong position of servitude.
1: Definitely. And, I, and it's something that I've really contemplated a lot. And, you know, I think we all have these moments as genealogists and family historians that uh, if, if you get to have one more conversation, if you had one hour, you know, with anybody, mm, um, yeah. you know, and I, I can't say Emily's at the top of the list, but I would love an hour with Emily. And the stories that I've gotten, there, there's some great archives that come with this family. The congressman's papers ended up in my possession, uh, you know, his wife's, um, and then my grandmother's as well. And you talk about privilege. I mean, she was going to Carleton College, a private, you know, university, right on the cusp of the Depression, and still receiving uh, an allowance. And there was no talk of dropping out of college to make men's meet. I mean, they, these were definitely people of means. But as I read the documents, and I've not gone through them all. I probably have a thousand letters that I need to go through. I mean, you know, I'm just starting. But one of the things that I've heard, too, is that there was definitely a place. They were like sisters, but they weren't really sisters. And she was ultimately help. And so I do have... The ledgers that show her payments well into the 60s, and so what 's funny is that the five uncles you know my, 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 my dad and the four uncles I suppose the the Leonard boys really looked at her as co parent I would say there was just a pure love and a pure acceptance of who she was. But I don't think my grandmother ever lost sight of the relationship and the dynamic. Um, and I think it was clear who was on top and who, who wasn't. And I think you're right. I, I've often thought with Emily, I'm sure on some level, she was saved from hardships that maybe we can't even grasp and, and given oh, yeah. opportunities. But on the other hand, um, never married, never had a serious suitor. Yep. And I don't know. I mean, there, there's a million reasons for that, right? But on the other hand, that may have been what was expected. And so looking back on it, I always adored her. And, you know, that kid, adult, you know, you don't understand the adult world, but I look back on it with a different set of eyes today, which is, I wonder what she sacrificed for that family.
0: Absolutely.
1: And I agree with you is that, you know, it was it was privilege and lack of privilege. And there, there was no question about that. I luckily, I know a lot of people that go through family history, you start to ask the wrong questions, you, you don't want the sainted version of everything, you tend to get pushback, but I will say I've never been afraid of that, and as I look at this, I, I think you're right, I mean, I adore my grandmother, she was one of the most amazing people I ever met, but I definitely recognize as an adult, there's a more complicated story there.
0: Oh, absolutely, and I also find it interesting that you you too are accepting of the idea of grandma couldn't cook because more... Was expected of her in a way because she was educated. Therefore, she wasn't going to do home, and yeah. that's an interesting. You were obviously raised in that expectation or that sentiment as well. And and when we we're raised in that, it's it's hard to get that out in the wash. You know. Yeah, and
1: I, and I will say that I think one of the things is that uh, when Grandma went to college mm-hmm. and. One of the things I'm finding in some of the personal letters are really anguished letters from her college friends that she was marrying somebody very, I, I don't want to say common, but I mean, you know, was not an intellectual uh, and was local. And, you know, one of her boyfriends in college went on, was governor uh, Warren Knowles went on to be governor of Wisconsin. That was the level that she was at and was well-educated and, it comes from society um her right. parents attended many many balls and social functions in washington dc and chicago and it was very common you know uh in that circuit and my grandmother always dressed i mean it mm-hmm. wasn't a jeans and t-shirts day you know um, <laughs> <laughs> i i i the two all things. all the time yeah first of all she had an impeccable fashion sense and I, i'm just jealous i would love the clothes she had you know to to share with you know people in my family, she was just well-dressed. You know, I think it was just understood that she always felt that she was destined for something bigger and that, you know, domesticity was not it. And I think it, it goes into also that Emily was there. Why would you? Right. It, is, it is assumed that she will continue that role, and I think what's interesting was it was it expected? Was it an implicit agreement? My father saved you from a horrific, you know, uh, childhood, and I expect that you will continue to serve me. It, was it indentured? Was it willing? She adored those five boys. I mean, she absolutely treated them like her own children. But again, I I think as you you get the Time and adulthood you start to realize that you know there had to be more than that. there had to be you know you, you can 't just fulfill yourself through someone else 's children um, yeah. and and maybe it 's possible, but I think in most cases it, it does come down to almost a form of servitude
0: well, I love that you 're honoring emily and and that she 's been honored by those children that she basically raised herself because. They named daughters for her. I love that. I love that her food is something that the proximate sons that she had raised their own families on her food as well, and that it's been handed down to you as a kind of a proximate grandson. I think that's really, really cool. Mm -hmm. And so tell us what's in Emily's casserole. What is this? Wonderful food. Sure, (laughs) I just comfort food because comfort food. You know, I gotta say this for a minute. I love that. I will love that people want to come on because I'm and I'm dragging people. I want people to come on. I want you to come on and tell us these things. I don't want you to come on and be all like, "Oh well, it has to have like five different kinds of wine in it or something in order for it to qualify for the family cookbook." I want it to be a food that is a food that your family enjoyed and ate and. Comfort food is really important food. When my mom was ill with cancer, she went back to cream chip beef and tuna potato chip casserole, much to the horror of many people (laughs) who are like, don't you want a salad? Don't you want to be eating something out of this book for people who have cancer? And she was like, no, I want cream chip beef and I want tuna potato chip casserole. So I think that it's really important. Comfort foods are the things that we resort to At times of discomfort, you know, that's exactly what they're for. That's why they're called comfort food. So I'm really glad that you've brought us a comfort food. So tell us what this is.
1: Sounds good. So it is, uh, I'm just going to read it out straight. Absolutely. It's uh, three pounds of sliced potatoes. Um, You know, we we slice them a little thin. Uh, A bag of sliced carrots. One medium to large sliced onion. One and a half pounds of ground beef browned one can of cream of celery soup, All right. one can of milk. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I will have to say that when I first got the recipe, I had to reach back out to my mother and ask, what's a can of milk? Um, <laughs> and some of these old recipes, you never know. And she explained to me very nicely that it's just filled the can of cream of uh, celery soup with milk.
0: There um, you
1: go. So uh, butter a Dutch oven, layer potatoes, carrots, onions, and the ground beef. Mix the soup and milk together, pour it over the top, and it's uh, 350 for an hour and a half. And so, one of the things too in my conversation, my mythical conversation with Emily, will be: uh, so where did this come from? This does not seem like German uh, immigrant food, although it most certainly could be. It you know, I, I spent some time in the upper peninsula of, of uh, Michigan and they ate pasties, which were just a, a Cornish delicacy, but it was really, uh, it was just, you know, pepper steak, potatoes, rutabaggies, onions, cheap, easy, stored forever, put in a piece of pastry and it'll keep you full, you know, for, uh, at lunch for the full day down in the mines. And sometimes it is that three ingredient and, um, and it, maybe this does harken back to something that she's modified. The cream of celery soup tips me off that it's, it, it, it just seems like something out of the 50s. But if you think about it, too, there's no other seasoning. There's no pepper or salt, and I definitely throw in pepper, but I, you know, I do not salt it with that cream of, cream of uh, celery. <laughs> but um,
0: That does that for you, doesn't it? Right? Absolutely.
1: <laughs> and I thought maybe that's it. Maybe when you're running after five kids and whatever else you're having to do, you know, maybe Emily's family's recipe called, you know, called for basic good cellar ingredients plus X, Y, and Z. But you know what, a cream of celery soup is just easier. So maybe it is modified. Maybe it does have a little lineage. It also could just as easily be out of Redbook. It really sounds like something out of Redbook, you know, from 1952, Yeah, which is right at the height of these children, you know, um, who are all full of energy and running nonstop. So, Yeah. I I wish I knew more about the lineage. Um, I wish, you know, I could tie it back in somehow, but at the very least, I know it definitely has a profound place in my, like you said, almost my soul. My oldest, once when uh, it was like age six, you know, we had a great meal or something. This is soul food. and I was like, "Mm, this is Ethiopian food. He said, no, it just makes your soul feel good. I was like, okay, yeah, that's legit. You can call that soul food. Yeah. um, That's what this is too. It just, you know, growing up on it. Uh, So I guess it doesn't have to be complicated. Like I said, I don't need five kinds of wine and uh, nothing but fresh herbs. You know, (laughs) a a good can of celery soup will do do what it needs to do, right?
0: Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that, the theory that I have, and I am not a food historian, I don't pretend to be a food historian. I am just somebody who likes to try to figure stuff out and then put the idea out there and then potentially be smacked down by real food historians. But here's my theory. My theory is that cream of celery soup, cream of chicken soup, any of the cream soups that were used in any of these kinds of casseroles that did come from, say, the period of World War II or so, those were replacements for cream sauces that were made with a roux because they were quicker and because you didn't necessarily need Super fresh milk. In fact, you could use water plus powdered milk and then use the soup in order to make this as a substitute with more flavoring in it and potentially also more nutritional value than a cream sauce. Because I I keep thinking about my grandmother, who uh, who did the Johnny Mazzetti grandmother, who <laughs> she will ever be forever and ever be known as the Johnny Mazzetti grandmother on this podcast. Um, she made those kinds of recipes because that was what they had that that's what they could get you know at the PX when she was this military uh, wife during the war, and so I think that that's probably part of it. And I wonder, I know that there are some food historians out there, so I'm making an appeal. Food historians, if any of you are listening, please respond to this episode and tell us, where do you think this comes from? Because I would love to know. Where do you think that the cream sauce element comes from, the cream of chicken or cream of celery factor in any kind of a casserole that is a comfort food casserole comes from. But specifically, where do you think that Emily's casserole came from? By all means, answer Rick's plea. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see what we can get for this.
1: That's right.
0: So this has been Emily's casserole. And again, I want to thank you, Rick, very much for being here today. And Rick can be found his blog is called An American Genealogy. He's also got a wonderfully active Twitter account you know how I love my active Twitter accounts. Um, he's you're really great about you know promoting other people and stuff like that as well as letting everybody know what your research is and Rick is going to come back to us and he's going to talk to us about a project he's got going on that blows my mind because it's about DNA and things that I frankly don't have a great handle on. So, we're going to talk about that in a future episode. But in the meantime, thank you for being here, Rick.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was great.
0: Great. Awesome. Well, wasn't that exciting? Our very first food correspondent. I don't know about you, but I had a great time with that one. Rick is awesome and he will be back. So, you want to be on too? You want to come and be a food correspondent? I am ready for you, and I want you to come on too. So all you have to do is this. Go to ancestorsalivegenealogy.com, look on the right-hand column, and there's a page for you. It's called Be On The Podcast. That's fairly direct, don't you think? And it's a form. Fill out the form, let me know what you want to do, and we'll talk. Simple as that. All you need is a professional quality headset or a pair of earphones and a professional quality mic and of course you need good high-speed internet because bad high-speed internet is definitely our enemy and that's pretty much it so have a great week feed yourself something comfy something cozy and above all expect surprises